0: Welcome, welcome to uh, the next in our series of lectures associated with our science and cooking class. Uh, We're especially fortunate uh, tonight to have uh, David Chang lecturing. Um, He actually is lecturing specially for Public lecture, and uh, we didn't, weren't able to unfortunately fit him in for our class, so you have a special treat tonight to hear an excellent lecturer who we don't even get to have join our class next year for sure. Um, as always, uh, thanks to our sponsors um, Jose Andres and the Think Food Group, uh, uh, the Alicia Foundation, both for financial and intellectual support, Montferrand. Whole Foods on River Street, uh, which supplies all our laboratory supplies. After all, we eat our labs. Uh, Fusion Chef by uh, Julabo and the uh, Catalania Bank. Okay, so also a special thanks uh, tonight to uh, Craig on Main and Tony Maas uh, for entertaining uh, some of the group uh, last night. And uh, David will uh, take over as soon as we do a little bit of our science. So um, tonight, we're going to hear a lecture about um, microbiology. Um, This is not a subject that we covered in great detail in our class, but there are a few things that we can uh, discuss that might be amusing and informative To learn something about the science that we'll are here. hear. Actually, we'll be fortunate that we'll have two people uh, telling us about the science, as well as uh, what David will tell us. So just to get started, and at least to have our equation of the week, um, let me uh, have a little bit of a review of polymers. Those of you who have been uh, coming regularly to this uh, lecture series know that we've discussed polymers uh, throughout Uh, Or many, several times in these lectures, Um, but I want to discuss a particular polymer that uh, will come up over and over again in uh, our discussion of microbiology, and I want to just think about one small aspect of it, one amusing aspect of it. So, first of all, the hydrocolloid polymers that we've talked about, the more traditional colloid, uh, more traditional polymers that are used uh, to control texture, to thicken things are long linear polymers, very flexible. Um, They fill a lot of space and we've discussed a great deal about how they behave in controlling the texture of various kinds of foods. For example, um, alginate we use uh, both uh, primarily as a gelling agent uh, with uh, calcium to uh, form shells of uh, different sorts when we're doing spherification. Another class of uh, polymers uh, that we've talked about, we haven't really discussed them as polymers, but they are, are proteins. Uh, they uh, are much more complex in their behavior, uh, primarily because they have both hydrophobic and hydrophilic uh, regions, this, uh, Greg Verdine discussed that, if you heard uh, his portion of the uh, lectures. Um, but they are also polymers, They're amino acids, they're held together by amide bonds, and you get these long chains of of proteins, which will fold up because of their different nature, because of their, uh, in particular, because of their uh, different types of uh, side chains, which can be both hydrophilic and hydrophobic. You find particular kinds of folding to have very specific structure. They can unfold uh, when you cook, and. Uh, form new structures, which is part of what the cooking process is. Um, They are nevertheless a a polymer. You can think of them as a polymer. Uh, Here's one example of one of the amino acids. There are uh, a series of them that are joined together to form these protein molecules. Of course, proteins themselves are unique in the fact that they are coded for by uh, DNA. And DNA is itself a polymer. It is a particular polymer which um, actually holds a clue to all of uh, the information that is life. Uh, And DNA is a unique polymer that it's made up of four particular bases. They can uh, provide information the way they pair up and the way they code for creating different proteins. And this is the the essence, the secret of all of life. And we will hear uh, a bit today about how by sequencing various uh, portions of this DNA, you can learn something in great detail about the microbes that are being used in the uh, food. And it's an interesting um, uh, sort of intellectual question to think about what it means about the diversity that in principle, the DNA, Uh, provides. I'm going to do a very simple calculation to show you what this diversity is. And this is, uh, in fact, to show you one limit of uh, what the diversity is. It's by no means uh, the actual diversity, and I'll show you why. So um, if we think about DNA, it's got, as I said, four bases. um, And you can think about, if I have a certain length of DNA, what is the, the information it carries is the information in the uh, sequence of bases. And so, When you sequence DNA, you read these different bases. I don't want to go into uh, enormous detail, but I just want to point out an amusing fact about this. Imagine that I just take these sequences and I ask how many, in principle, how many different sequences, how many different variants are possible. And let's just go through that calculation. I'm going to do a very simple-minded calculation. The experts will find many reasons to poke holes in this, but nevertheless, let me just go through the simple-minded calculation. If I have one base, there are four different possibilities. If I have two bases, there are another four different possibilities. So in principle, I can just uh, keep multiplying. There's four by four, that's 16. I can keep multiplying by four to ask how many, in principle, different variants I have. I can just keep multiplying up. I'm ignoring a lot of the overlapping things, so this is just a simple-minded calculation. But for example, in this case, I have what? One, two, three, four, five, six different bases, and I've just arbitrarily labeled them by different possibilities. So the total number of possibilities here is four by four by four. 4,096 different uh, possible bases. Um, So the total number of sequences is in this case, four to the sixth or 4,096. And we typically prefer to write this just to make comparisons, not in base four, but rather in base 10. So I'll write that uh, 10 to the n times the logarithm of four. This is about 0.6. so, this tells us then if we have, if we think about how many different types of variants we have, we have uh, four, another four, that's two, and so on and so on, up to the nth. And so, the total number that we have when we have n of these is the number of variants is four to the n, or 10 to the, log, 10 to the n log four. And that we we'll use as our equation of the week. Now let me show you how surprising this is, if you think about it. Here are some numbers. Here are the different number potential variants that you would have if you have uh, one base up to 10 bases. This is about a million. The E. coli. A simple bacterium has a genome of about 4.6 million. Our genomes are about six billion, a thousand times larger. The bacterium has a genome of 4.6 million. So if I calculate how many in principle, how many variants there are, it's 10 to the 2.76 million. 10 to the 2 million, 10 to the 3 million. Is that a large number? Yes. Let's compare it to things that we know. How many people are active on (laughs) Facebook? About 10 to the 8th. Ah, we just had the 7 billionth person uh, a couple weeks ago. That's 7 times 10 to the 9. There's 4 times 10 to the 11 stars in the galaxy, there's 10 to the 30th bacteria. That's an estimate of how many bacteria uh, live in the world now. I actually did a calculation. We went through these numbers a couple of lectures ago. I calculated the mass of 10 to the 30th uh, bacteria. And I came up with that. they're about That's about one part in 10 to the 9 of the total mass on earth and remember we calculated how long it takes if you have a doubling time of 20 minutes, it takes about 43 hours for one bacterium to multiply to be the mass of the earth. So it's a relatively small number, obviously can't grow that much. If I calculate the total number of atoms in the world, it's something like 10 to the 50, the total number of possible bacterial genomes is much, much, much larger. So there's a tremendous diversity Potential diversity. Obviously, you can never achieve it, but it's a tremendous potential diversity. Um, You can do another calculation. You can ask how many, if you had a total number of different bacteria, how many bacteria have lived since the beginning of of time? And the way I did that calculation was, or Nat Naveen did this, the way, the way we did it was we made a simple estimate. There are 10 to the 30th bacteria right now on Earth. The age of the Earth is about four billion years. On um, a lifetime, okay, I don't know, maybe it's a day, maybe it's an hour. It's not gonna make that much of a difference. Let's take it as an hour. I calculated how many hours since the beginning of, a time each bacterium has that many times has, has multiplied that many times, I assume that since it takes 40 hours to, to reach the total number, a much larger number of bacterium that in instantaneously I have that many I just calculated on average, there's that many bacterium. It works out to be something like 10 to the 43 bacterium have lived ever. And that number, of course, is much smaller than the potential diversity that you could have. So what that tells us, of course, is there's lots more room to explore. (laughs) In actual fact, of course, none of these or a very, very small fraction of these will ever be found. But still, it just shows you the tremendous diversity that's available and why, in a sense, sequencing is such a powerful tool to understand something about the nature. And I think we'll hear a lot more of that. And so with that, let me give it over to uh, David Chang.
1: Thanks guys, um, it's an honor to be here, um, everyone at the Harvard and Food and Science Program has been tremendous in making this happen. Uh, this is my team from New York, that's Dan Felder and uh, um, Veronica Terizio. Um I feel highly unqualified to talk about my- microbiology here today at Harvard, um, but I wanted to share this with you because I feel that uh the past year we've we've really struggled to to learn more about it because uh i feel that this is where a lot of the flavor is going to be Uh, flavors that are unknown and more importantly um, it allows us to ask the question of why for the very simple things like pickling or fermenting things Uh, as i think a lot of the culinary techniques we've come full circle and now everything's homemade this and homemade that but i still want chefs and cooks to ask the question why. Um, so last year we uh, <coughs> explained how we started to make our own pork bushi. So before I do that, let me just give you a little primer. This is uh, petrified bonito, katsuobushi, uh, very important in Japanese cuisine. It is uh, inoculated with aspergillus orzie, otherwise known as koji. and uh, these are all names that I didn't mean that much to us at the time, uh, and I didn't understand that these things had a lot of flavor. Uh, Aspergillus is a, is a mold, and you steam the fish, you smoke the fish, you dehydrate the fish, and you inoculate it with the mold, and uh, this type of katsubushi can last forever almost. When you shave it, you add it to a broth and you steep it like a tea. So last year, we felt that we made a, uh, a huge discovery by uh, making it with pork. I wanted to make a pork bushy, um, partly because I didn't like pork tenderloin. Could we make a block of pork and uh, turn it into bushy, petrify it, smoke it, the whole, the, the, the same uh, principles, just uh, a little bit different with pork, and we succeeded. Um, it looks like a piece of wood. It smelled uh, like smoky pork. It was, uh, it was a real, we, we were giving high fives, and we didn't even know why, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, that's a meat glued piece of pork uh, that we, again, uh, it's been aged probably about, it was like six, seven months, and it, instead of t- having a fishy taste, it had a little bit of a like a ham, Ham broth. It was very nice and very gentle, um, and it took us a long time to figure out what was actually important in this. Um, and again, asking the question of why? Why did we do this? It wasn't because uh, we wanted to make pork bushy. We we wanted to know what different flavors are out there. Can we can we expand our palate a little bit? And that's what we are. That's the biggest challenge as chefs is everyone. Is working with sort of the same ingredients and the same techniques now. Where can we find more flavors? And that's where microbiology comes in. And uh, you know, uh, as as was, uh, uh, there's just a lot that we don't know about it. And there's a lot of flavors in microbes that uh, affect food when they uh, when they collide together. Um, so this <laughs> this is a note that I took last year while grading the finals last year. Uh, for your final exam, um, and it was the professor Roberto Coulter, and he was he gave like an impassioned little speech about microbiology, and I've never seen somebody so excited about microbiology. And he literally said it's the future of food, and I said no to self. This guy is much smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> this guy knows a lot about food. What is he talking about? And I, I that's what I etched, and I tore it out, and. Um, I was just—I went back to the lab. Uh, we have a little lab in New York, and you know, we sort of plotted along the way, trying to figure out what the hell we were going to do about microbiology. What exactly does that mean for us? Um, so, uh, you guys all have a paper bag. If you guys can taste the first one. It says number one. By, by the way, if anyone has a peanut allergy, don't eat number three or, or <laughs> number four. Um. <clears throat> so, what you have in your hands is uh, is koji, Aspergillus orzier. It's it's a, it's a It's actually a pulverized version of of, uh, barley, and we inoculated it with aspergillus. And you'll see that it has a lot of flavor. What we didn't realize was that these things, these Latin terms, these names, these scary words actually had flavor when it was combined with food. I am stuck. Um, okay. So when we made when we made our katsubushi, we wanted to find Aspergillus. The first time I made it, I literally stuck it in a, in a, a sack of rice, and I forgot about it. And it was a happy accident. What we that's what we were trying to find was aspergillus. What we found was it was uh, not, it, it didn't ferment with aspergillus, it fermented with pichia, which is a completely different uh, family of mold altogether, usually found in like European uh, cured pork products and whatnot. How that happened in our little lab in the East Village on 10th Street, I have no idea. But it took us a long time to realize, hey wait a second, um, these, these, uh, these molds are actually working very similar, but the PCI gives the pork just a little bit different of a different flavor. So we inoculated uh, pork bushy with both aspergillus and PCI and they both worked. So. Mind you, again, we know very little about microbiology. We're just going very blind and working very closely with uh, the R- Rachel Dutton and Ben Wolf, who I'll introduce in a little bit. So, this led to the question of, okay, how does this make food more delicious for us? How do we apply this discovery of, of okay, we're trying to use aspergillus, it tastes delicious, koji is fruity, it's, there's a lot of nuance in it, it's, it's got terroir. Um, and how do we apply this thing called pichia to what we do? Um, so that really wasn't answered until, uh, I'd say about five, four or five months ago where we realized if we could work with pichia, we could do it with something else because aspergillus oryzae. Is historically or originated in Asia, Japan, Korea, China, um, and everyone's making miso. Everyone's making soy sauce all over the world, but they're still using Aspergillus oryzae as its starter, as to inoculate and to start the fermentation process. Um, so everything you eat is rooted in Asian food for the most part. So um, we were trying to figure out the flavors then, all right? What does aspergillus taste like? We, we made all sorts of tests uh, with PCA, whatnot, and we wanted to, we, we didn't get anywhere because we didn't understand what the hell we were doing. We still don't, but <laughs> <coughs> we tried to apply it to things that we were using at our own restaurants, like cooking steak. You can smell the steak right now that we were roasting. Uh, we didn't want to sit off the sprinkler, so we took it off. Um, so we were trying to understand microbiology through literally how we use it in the restaurant. And uh, is it functional? How How is it functional? So um, this is uh, ribeye, and it's, it's in a very humid, tempered environment, and it's acting as a magnet for microbes. And after a while, you're really just controlling the rotting process. Dry-aged beef is... Uh, it's 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 rotted. It's it's it's. Um, if you smell it, it smells like blue cheese. Um, <coughs> it's y- you cut it off and you don't really notice. Um, but good, great steak. Great when you go to a steakhouse, it's been dry aged proper. Uh, fresh meat is not really f- something that you would do anything to you y- because you're dry aging this beef because you want to develop flavor and the nuances in in, in it. Um, what you're trying to go after is, um, this is actually one of the the, the molds that grow on uh, the dry-aged beef. I mean, just, we don't even know what goes on in the dry-aging rooms. I've t- spoken to chefs all over the world who dry-age their own beef, and they don't know because it's different everywhere. So dry-aging beef tastes, dry-aged beef will taste different all over the planet. So that really is terroir. So, uh, if you open up your Petri dish number two, it's MSG. So, some of you may not want to taste it, but it is what it is. Um, We're dry aging that beef to develop that flavor, MSG. It's glutamic acid. So you're creating an environment, the meat is acting as a magnet for microbes to have, so the enzymes can work, break down the protein, turn some of it into amino acid, the most important of which is glutamic acid. That is umami, that is MSG. What you're eating is just a sodium molecule that's been added to the the glutamic acid so you can actually, you know, sprinkle it around or eat it. Um, It's just a vehicle. So th- all that effort in terms of dry-aging beef, which could take up towards a 75 to 100 days, some people I know are dry-aging their beef upwards of six to seven months. So you're losing a lot of water. It's a very expensive, labor-intensive process. Um, you're doing that to develop more flavor, and that is exactly what you're tasting. That's what you taste when you eat Parmesan, that's what you taste when you eat soy sauce, but this is naturally occurring. And, uh, Even that MSG you're eating is just created through bacterial fermentation. Um, So, a second way we were trying to discover how uh, microbiology and microbes affected how we do food at, at Momofuku, we pickle a lot of stuff. Um, Kimchi and just about everything we can pickle, we we try to. I love pickled vegetables, I love the acid, I love the crunch that uh, pickles can provide in a certain dish. But I realized how wrong I was when, again, I was properly educated on how microbiology works in food. And that's the most important thing because chefs have to be more knowledgeable. We have to be better teachers. And a good example is, I think if you ask most cooks, like um, myself included, uh, we've all made sauerkraut uh, or something along those lines. And I, you always ask the chef, um, how does this work? Well, just put some salt on it, cover it with a weight, put it in a, put it in a dark corner, and it's just gonna ferment. And you, you say, how? And they're just like, it's like magic, it just ferments. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good enough answer anymore. And what was interesting was we realized that sauerkraut is something that sometimes we make, but kimchi we make quite a bit. So, <coughs> they're both, I, I call them kissing cousins, because you would never think that sauerkraut and kimchi are the same thing. Kimchi is a Korean staple, you know. it's. It's fiery most of the, most of the time, made with red chili pepper, uh, some type of seafood. Um, sauerkraut is just salt, that's it. And what I it was it was one of these things where I, I I was like, oh my god, I'm such a moron. Uh, how th- how did I not know this? Um, and why didn't any chef inquire about this? It, it ferments because it creates lactic acid and. You're creating an anaerobic environment, and you're changing the pH level and the salinity when you salt the cabbage, just like you do when you make kimchi. You're not introducing any microbes that help with the fermentation process. It's already in, it's already in present in the cabbage. Cabbage is already a natural magnet for two types of lactobacillus bacteria. So, when you're adding it, they're just eating the starch and turning it into a lactic acid, and that creates fermentation. So really, when you have kimchi, which can be effervescent and very bubbly, and sauerkraut, which can also be very effervescent and bubbly, uh, if you take away the, the spice and all the flavors that you add to kimchi, it's the same thing. So it took me a long time to, to get my head wrapped around that, because I, I had it the wrong way around. I thought, well, sauerkraut is because, you know, magic. and. <laughs> kimchi was because we're adding proteins, we're, we're adding fish sauce, we're adding, uh, you know, shrimp, oysters, and that's breaking down and that's causing some type of weird fermentation, but that's not the case. It's just changing the flavor profile. Um, so we, uh, we, we did a time lapse, and I, I was going to show you the video, but I realized that it just, it doesn't really show you anything. <laughs> Um, but, we buried a jar of kimchi and it actually exploded four times. Um, <laughs> because traditionally you do bury kimchi in the backyard um, and it gets angry and it bubbles and that's, there's a reason why I now understand that uh, Korean households have the, those earthenware jars. Um, they knew what they were doing, obviously we didn't. Um, but it, it's a it's a it's an amazing thing to to see kimchi work, um, and again, I've told cooks for eight years how kimchi was not, I mean, improperly telling them how it works. So um, it was a very, uh, I, I was happy to learn how it worked and to correct myself. Um, <coughs> so that led to. We're, we're, we're going on through the year and we'll get a better understanding of of microbiology. We're getting a better understanding of how it's used in pickles, how it's used to make food more delicious because that's what we're always after our chefs. How do we make the food more tasty? So we wanted to take the next step and make it ourselves. So we didn't really know exactly how to do it. I had seen it in Japan before um, and in various places and I just thought it was one of those things where you can't do it. It's just one of those things that it's better to import from Japan. Um, So what we have here is, uh, again, koji, and it's not been um, activated. You activate aspergillus at around 40 Celsius um, in high humidity. And this is a time-lapse video that happened in one night. So we cooked the rice and we inoculate it with the mold Aspergillus orzier. And I think it's very beautiful, and my, most people might think that's, that's disgusting, but that's the flavor, that's the action that gives soy sauce, miso, all that flavor. And it boggles my mind still, that is magic to me, right? So <laughs> this, this is a little bit of our lab and we're trying to understand, again, how the mold grows. This is really, it was Microbiology 101, thank you Rachel and Ben still. Um, so if you pick out the apple and the peanut barley, we made a miso out of uh, peanuts and barley Bar- you, can, you can make uh, miso out of many, many different things. Um, this one, again, if you have a peanut allergy, please stay away. Um, but peanuts and apples go pretty well together. Just take a little bit of it, either scoop, spoon it on the apple or however you want to do it. But um, <coughs> the barley, well, I mean, this was made in five days, actually. So, uh, this is a little bit of a video of how we made it, it's not that complicated. So, you c- we had a variety of things that we've been making miso out of, uh, yellow peas, we tried corn, lima beans, things that are high in starch, hopefully have a lot of protein, uh, barley works extraordinarily well, and we found a nice combination of peanut and barley, uh, and that is inoculated with Aspergillus orzier, which has, a, again, a specific type of flavor and smell. So what you're doing is, essentially, you're, you're, you're taking, uh, let's say it's the barley, and you're just cooking the hell out of it. You make a puree, uh, make it smooth, and you reintroduce uh, the aspergillus to that uh, by activating it, and uh, much like uh, you would with yeast. So if you walked in our lab, you, you would think that we were, we'd be cooking stuff, but really we're just letting stuff rot and ferment it's a, it's a funny place right now but it 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 really opened our eyes to new flavors i would never have peanut butter i never thought peanut butter and miso would work i didn't even think you could make a miso out of peanut butter um, but it works and going back to the pork bushi This led us to have a little bit more confidence in terms of what we were doing, Um, so we wanted to take the next step. Okay, we know how to make miso, we know how to make soy sauce. Um, Okay, this is the flavor profiles we we understand. It's a little bit floral, it's a little bit sweet. Um, If we found that Pichia could work as a parallel to Aspergillus oryzae in terms of making bushi, could we make uh, miso was something native in America, native in the East Village of New York, <laughs> and that's why we were calling it microbial terroir because that's what it is. It's uh, it's let's make it for us uh, using ingredients literally that can only be described as um, you know native. So. Uh, this is what Rachel Dutton descri- uh, drew for us. Very simple. Uh, this is how we learned about microbiology. Uh, again, pictures work very well with us, or myself. <laughs> um, so we, d- we we ventured to make uh, d- to capture new microbes because they're they're everywhere. They're literally everywhere, and, and that's what we want to do at Momofuku. We want to find the great idea. That great flavor that's staring us right in the face—I'm um, sure you guys have all experienced that—that—that that, that idea that was staring you right in the face and you didn't think about it until later, or somebody else. It's like, you know, you, the slap your slap your forehead moment. You're like, oh my God, I, it was right there. And literally, we're, it's, we're looking at it. We just need a microscope. So, what we found was Neurospora, and. Uh, This is a recent development, I was very happy that we are able to capture a new microbe that works in conjunction with aspergillus, Um, and the flavors are in the fourth one you have. Don't eat it, don't eat it. (laughs) You can, but don't, don't. (laughs) It smells a little bit like cider, it it moves to to bubble gum. so, literally, again, I told Dan before I, I left for a trip, I was like, let's get all sorts of stuff and let's just rot, let's just let it go rot and we're going to mail it to Harvard. And <laughs> that's what we did. We mailed a bunch of rotting purees to, to the microbiology department here at Harvard and uh, they, they were, to I think everyone's amazement, um, They yeah, Ben, Ben Wolf, and Rachel Dutton, uh, can you help me explain what the hell we just found?
2: Um, so yeah, so we got this package of rotting rice from Momofuku, um, and so we started plating it out on petri dishes as we do as microbiologists, and. We started going through them all and, oh, there's another black one, oh, there's another brown one, there's another white one. And we sort of were like, okay, this isn't that interesting. It's the kind of molds that you'd see in your basement wall or anywhere in the environment. So we were a little bit, we were a little bit underwhelmed at first. Um, (laughs) So then we go home and come back on Monday, this is a weekend, and we start looking at one of the stacks of Petri dishes we had in the lab and one of the molds pushed open the lids of the petri dishes and started bursting out of the dish, essentially saying like, hey, look over here, we're not that underwhelming. Um, <laughs> and it turns out that this was the mold Neurospora. Um, so Neurospora is a really great find and for a couple of reasons. It's actually responsible for a Nobel Prize. There's a really classic discovery in molecular biology that won a Nobel prize to do with um, one gene, one enzyme hypothesis. You can Google that to learn more about that. But it's also a really exciting fungus for us. um, And we were able to recognize it immediately because it's it's widely used in molecular biology because it has been traditionally been used in West Java to make something called onchum. So if you go to the next slide, um, you'll see this is onchum being made. It's spelled onchum, but it's actually pronounced onchum. There are various ways to spell it. And you can see this is this orange mold Neurospora spreading across, um, these are peanut patties that have been pressed together. Uh, and it's very similar in terms of the machinery that it has to break down proteins and lipids and the things that Aspergillus does. So it was really awesome that by putting out these plates in the test kitchen, these guys happened to capture something very close related to the same Neurospora strains that are used over in West Java to make a, a really exciting uh, fermented cake. So amazing accident that
1: you guys had. So we were very lucky the first time around to stumble, literally stumble upon Pichia, which again may mean nothing to you but meant so much to us. And we were very lucky again by blindly capturing this this microbe that uh, without, again, the help of Ben and Rachel, they need us. I mean, we need them a lot more than they need us, (laughs) trust me. So, you know, we're going to take this, you know, this is still a recent discovery. It's just, we we found out about it like last week, so it was very exciting. Um, Trying to figure out what the flavors are and how we're going to implement it in our food. What kind of soy sauce can we make? How's that going to taste? And, you know, this is what gets chefs excited because we now have another color we can play with. Um, But that's the, the, the real rub for me is, why don 't we know more about it it 's like a spice rack, I think uh, there's so many types of micro microorganisms, and if you you know w- collide them with with food, you get a different flavor and we don 't know. We know a lot about it in cheese, wine making, you know beer fermentation uh, obviously in 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 the soy sauce production and and, and uh, miso but there's there 's got to be other applications, and that 's why. Uh, I understand now why Professor Coulter said the future of food is in microbiology. Um, so <coughs> what we've learned too is uh, other chefs are sort of stumbling upon this at the same time. Um, we, we go to f- food conferences, uh, there was one recently in Copenhagen that uh, uh, Rene Redzepi held at, at Noma, and. They're making their own miso, Nordic miso, Um, and they're trying to find a way to make it without aspergillus. Right now they're making it with aspergillus, but then when they make it without aspergillus, what is it? You know, this is a restaurant that's famous for trying to make everything Scandinavian. If you just ferment, you know, yellow peas, what does that make it? You know, it, it is now sort of this head scratching question of where does this authenticity lie? If it tastes Japanese, but you're not using anything from Japan now, what is it? So um, it's really interesting stuff, what they're doing, particularly with garum as well. Garum's another example. We know very little about it other than it was used a lot in ancient Rome. But you have to ask yourself the question, what does it taste like? Can it, does it, who, and who invented it first? Was it Southeast Asia or, or the Romans? Or what? These are things that keep me up at night. Um, <laughs> So, what what happened was, we realized that, and I think that chefs, because most of us uh, don't have graduate degrees, we know very little about science, most of us cheated our way through science classes for the most part. Um, (laughs) We don't know that much, so we have to work hand-in-hand with universities, so we're very fortunate that Harvard has been very helpful Um, But we learned that chefs were sort of reticent to talk about what they're working on because even though it's science, we don't wanna be seen as scientists or biologists because we don't really know that much about it. But what we learned, and I learned uh, since August, was uh, you have Alex Atala, who's uh, one of the best chefs in the world, and he's messing around with all sorts of lacto-fermentation using Amazonian ingredients. Uh, we don't have a catalog of any of this, so we don't even know what it tastes like or what it might even taste like. Uh, Andoni at uh, Mugurits, he's trying to isolate that flavor uh, when you have black miso cod, uh, fermented m- black miso cod. Uh, Favakin is probably one of the most interesting examples. Uh, yeah, great young chef uh, named Magnus Nielsen. Uh, <coughs> he has about 20,000 acres, And everything he cooks is on that plot of land, Um, and he's making everything. He grows everything, and he's been making his own soy sauce, and he's been making his own miso. And uh, successfully, he said, he's found out how to make soy sauce without using aspergillus. He also was successful in finding uh, a cousin to aspergillus, and. Uh, I have not been able to taste it, I, it got caught in custom. so. Uh, <laughs> um, it was very exciting. And someone like uh, Magnus had to find out about this, again, microbiology happened as an accident for him as well, because his restaurant is so far away from, I wouldn't say civilization, but it's really in the middle of nowhere, that he had to send his water samples to the, the local university to get it checked out if it was, if it was, uh, you know, non-non. It was drinkable, um, and that opened the doorway for him to sort of analyze everything else. So right now he's making Swedish miso, Swedish soy sauce, but again, it's a head scratcher. Like, it doesn't taste Japanese, or does it taste Japanese, or is it Swedish? Um, because fermented foods have been around a very long time, and now we're able to separate ourselves from Aspergillus oryzae. Uh, I wouldn't say it's been shackles, but it, it, again, it's an it's a eye-opening experiment. Um, and, you know, we're doing it in, in, in New York and e- the East Village, and we found uh, Neurosphora. I mean, how the hell would that happen? I have no idea. But uh, hopefully we're going to get more and more restaurants and more and more chefs involved, and working in coordination with local universities to help catalog a lot of these flavors that microbes uh, develop and uh, create. So uh, that's it. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: So we have we prepared some slides of the Aspergillus and one of the yeast involved in miso production, the Zygosaccharomyces. If you guys want to take a look up close, um, you can come down and check out the microscopes.
0: Before you do, maybe we can take questions. Sure, certainly. Questions.
2: enormous number you were talking about earlier with the science, is that potentially the n- number of flavors you could be working with?
0: <laughs> there's not that many. I, I, They're not, not all of those are available for, you, you will never reach that number. The number of flavors are something that uh, the chefs can deal with.
1: And not everything's They don't really
0: edible. depend on the, it just says that there's a tremendous pl-
1: Hello. Um, so microbes are famous for uh, producing co metabolites of various kinds, particularly toxins and, um, and carcinogens and things. So, how do you screen the
2: microbes that you're using in your natural fermentations?
1: We send them to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, that really is, uh, I have a tendency to taste anything that I see even if it looks bad, um, <laughs> but uh, Rachel and Ben were very adamant, like, do not eat this until it gets uh, DNA sequenced and uh, checked out thoroughly. Um, and even, even I was talking to Magnus, he waited a long time before he tasted his soy sauce before it got checked out by the local university as well. So. Um, we you, you can't really do it without some serious help. Um, so we don't know, we don't really know until it gets tested by some somebody like Rachel and Ben. Hi.
2: Um, you've been talking a bit about making your own soy sauce or miso, and I was curious if you could talk about um, where those are finding use in your restaurants, um, like how they're being used in dishes, things like that?
1: Um, Making our own soy sauce and miso is something that, actually, is something I want to retire and do. But um, we opened, we just opened a restaurant in Australia, and it's been very difficult to procure soy sauce, miso, uh, all all types of food from Japan uh, because of the recent uh, tragedies and earthquake over there. Um, there there's been very very hard, it's been very very hard to get it in, so you know, immediately we just said, we'll just make it ourselves. So uh, that's what we're going to do. Um, we're gonna start making our own shiro miso, our own soy sauce, um, and hopefully, it, it's only gonna get better by by making mistakes and trying to correct them every day. Uh, in New York, uh, it's a bit hard to do it. I, I thought by now we would be selling pork bushi everywhere. Uh, everyone would be using it, but no, Nobody's using it, not even us, because <laughs> uh, um, it takes a long time to make, and we just don't have the space and the storage to do it right. Yes, sir.
2: So you seem to be um, getting a home run with all
0: these uh, happy accidents um, when it tastes great. But how, how, how often
2: do you actually have an experiment that way? You look afterwards like, oh, this is really awful. <laughs> is, is that? Do you get more successes?
1: Um, I think uh, I think a lot of the people here that work in the science uh, department can probably understand uh, and, and relate that uh, there's more failures than there are success. And uh, it's very hard for cooks to make sure that we document that and to make sure that we know that because of that mistake, maybe it opened another doorway. Um, and sometimes you just catch a break, and we've been very lucky. But for the most part, I'd say 99% of what we do is total failure.
0: Somebody back there? I have a question. Um, Like, if you make Yuba, for
1: example? Correct.
0: uh, If you boil the soybeans and you take the skin off, would you call that the same principle as fermentation?
1: Um, I don't think that is fermentation. That's just creating a, a skin from the protein um i don't again have I, I the question is is yuba ferment, fermented basically um i don't think so um it's just like a milk skin and even if you leave it out overnight i mean you could certainly ferment it you know there's stinky tofu that that is something that is uh not in my playbook i just don't touch that stuff <laughs> um <laughs> but uh you could certainly ferment it, but if you laid it out overnight to d- dehydrate, I don't think that's that technically is fermented.
0: Yes. Uh, I guess I have a quest- uh, two questions. One is, how easy are these things to do at home and how safe? And the other one is, do you think there is any room for improvements in more traditional things like making cheese or wine with new bacteria?
1: Um, on the second question first, uh, to make new improvements with the uh, wine and cheese and whatnot, I don't really know. Uh, I, this is literally not the extent, but I'm not worried about wine and cheese. I, uh, this, our focus is on making soy sauce. And when I said, this is we're trying to find what is practical for our restaurants to do. Um, this is what is practical and something that we can apply. So we learn in the lab and we can share with the different restaurants. Uh, Absolutely, if we're making wine or or cheese. You know, Daniel Patterson at at Qua in San Francisco, he's making his own uh, butter and his own dairy. So he's somebody that would, uh, I'd ask information about if we were doing that. Um, But uh, making your own at home, I, I would, I don't know. Certainly making your own kimchi and pickles that are from a cookbook. But going out to do what we did when basically we had a room full of you know, 25 things that were just gnarly looking. I don't know if you'd want to do that.
2: Uh, I have a question about sauerkraut. Uh, I recently made a batch of a sauerkraut and it failed, even though I made it before in l- big batches and it always was a success because the recipe is very simple. You just salt this uh, cabbage and you put it under press. So uh, I was suspecting that because the cabbage was uh, grown conventionally, it was from regular superstore, Uh, so my question to you, is my suspicion right that the cabbage that uh, grown commercially doesn't have the necessary bacteria to uh, uh, introduce the pickling process into making sauerkraut?
1: It's a really good question, and I would have to, again, defer to the experts. This is why they need their own TV show. They could <laughs> find, their, find out if um, the microbes are present in a conventional Napa cabbage or not. So uh, I don't know. What do you guys think?
2: I think it's possible that for non-organic cabbage, it might not have enough concentration of the microbes that you need the lactic acid bacteria on the leaves. So it's possible that that's the problem.
0: Any other questions?
2: I mean, uh, so thank you very much uh, for, H- how do you guarantee safety for what you guys are doing, right? I mean, a happy accident could put something in the hospital if it wasn't quite so happy,
1: right? Well. Someone's gotta taste it. <laughs> um, yeah. Somebody. Some, somebody's gotta go down that rabbit hole, and that's. Uh, and
2: and you're not worried about liability or any of these things. On a no, no,
1: no. We're not level. serving it to the customer. This is not not not, <laughs> not there yet. I mean, we'd be in a, bit, a lot of trouble if we did that. But um, you know. I asked the same thing to some some of my friends that forage a lot of food. I was like, "How do you know? How do you know which is which? Because sometimes something is very close to being poisonous." There's like, there's only one way to find out, really. <laughs>
0: um, do you know yet whether or not the flavor imparted by certain microbes has more to do with the microbe itself, or if it has to do with what the microbe is eating?
1: Um, I I think. Uh, that's actually something I'm trying to figure out myself. I think it as a, I'm calling it as a collision of the two. You know, like the dry aged beef, for instance. Um, that's a great example of, a, I think, a symbiotic relationship between uh, the, the the aging beef and the environment that is attracting the microbes. So um, I think they work together closely. So. Yeah, absolutely, uh, the question is um, are we focusing or uh, inquiring about making anything other than soy sauce and miso and uh, I want to make vinegar, I do. Everyone wants to make wine, I want to make vinegar.
2: <laughs> so you have this neurospora now and I mean are you planning to uh, spontaneously inoculate things with that? or? Do you intend to say take the take the microbe and culture that and say work, introduce that to things in the future? I mean, is there is there a is there a reason you would want to spontaneously ferment things as opposed to inoculating them?
1: Um, this is still new. I feel like I'm at like a. <laughs> I feel like I, I, I'm not qualified at all to answer that question, but. Um, we, when we know more, we're definitely going to use it spontaneously, hopefully. But um, we still don't know m- that much about how Neurospora works. I mean, even now, that all I know is that it grows extraordinarily fast, and that um, you know, we just fo- I just found out today that it, you know, people in Java use it. So uh, while it's a discovery for us, it's something that we're going to hold back and, and, and slowly test and make a lot of failures. So,
0: I'm wondering a little bit
2: about the intellectual property of uh, these new ideas and techniques. I'm wondering how collaborative chefs are and what sort of venues you guys have for sharing these sort of new techniques you're
1: developing. Um, It is quite collaborative right now Uh, as those those restaurants and the chefs that I spoke before, you know, we get together more often than I, I, uh, uh, we get together quite a bit actually. Um, But what we hope to do um, is create a database, online database and just share it because the more somebody figures out, for instance, in Sweden, that's going to help us with uh, an idea here in New York City or in Boston or wherever it may be. in terms of the intellectual property and all this stuff, uh, as far as a chef, you know, keep that information free and flowing. Can I ask you, as a chef, what else keeps you up at night? Oh, man, um, doing lectures at Harvard <laughs> keeps me up at night. You know. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah. But most most of the time, it's. Um, trying to run a restaurant. I don't think people understand just how hard it is even when it's running well. And to get better every day, you know, it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not glamorous by any means.
0: Okay, so rather than keep David up more tonight, let's thank him again. But before we do, remember to come down and have a look with uh, Rachel after the. Thank you guys.